invite your attention to the gospel according to Mark chapter 4. My text will be found in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. But I'm going to begin reading from the end of chapter 4. Locate Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Verse 35. And while you locate the passage, let me recite something that I learned many, many years ago. was battered and scarred and the auctioneer thought it's scarcely worth his while to spend much time on the old violin but held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars and who'll make it three? Three dollars once and three dollars twice and going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow and wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, he played a melody pure and sweet like a caroling angel sings. The music stopped, and the auctioneer with a voice now quiet and low said, What am I bid for the old violin holding it up with the bow? A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, and three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he, and the people cheered. But some of them cried, we do not quite understand what changed its worth. Quick came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, weary and worn in sin, is auctioned off to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice, going and almost gone till the master comes. And this foolish crowd never will quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus is in the region of Galilee. As you probably remember, the land of the Jews was divided into three sections. 
In the south was Judea, primarily the tribal holding of the tribe of Judah. Up to the north, around the Sea of Galilee, was Galilee of the Gentiles. Most of the other tribes lived there. Between the two, Galilee to the north, Judah to the south, was Samaria. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, and he wants to go to the other side. He's going to go to the eastern shore of, the, of Galilee, and that would have been mostly Gentile area, known as Gadara. And then Gadara was Decapolis, meaning ten cities. There were ten cities of the Romans in Decapolis on the east shore of the Jordan River. And Jesus is going to go over to that side of, of the Sea of Galilee. He says in verse 35, And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with them other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great call. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What am I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he, Jesus, said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he, 
asked him, What is thy name? And he, the man, answered, said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils or demons besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000, and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done, and they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid and they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine and they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts and when he was come into the ship he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis great things. Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. I want us to look at that subject of Jesus saves the gathering demoniac. There was a reason why I read the last part of chapter 4 before reading the account of this gathering. We'll come to that in a moment. But I want us to consider these points regarding the salvation of this gathering demoniac. First, consider this gathering was a pathetic man. Second, Jesus went to this pathetic man. Third, this pathetic man saw Jesus from afar. Fourth, this man came to Jesus out of the tombs. Fifth, he ran to Jesus. Sixth, he worshipped Jesus. Seventh, he was afterward found to be sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Eighth, he who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might be with him. Ninth, but Jesus had a greater purpose for this saved man. Tenth and last, the saved man witnessed of his Lord and Savior. Now, this account is in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is not found in John. You will observe when reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they generally record the same events. 
John does not. John records much of what happened with Jesus down around Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record much of what happened with this ministry up in Galilee. And they often record the same events, not the exact same words, for which reason these three are known as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means same eye. It is though the same eye has looked. Three men have used the same eye and wrote what they saw. They write of the same things. The details are usually the same. The words are not exactly the same, but you will notice that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event. John does not. Mark and Luke speak of what but one demoniac. Matthew speaks of two. There's no contradiction. Mark and Luke probably spoke of the more prominent of the of the two demoniacs, but neither of them says there was only one. There evidently were two, but we're reading about the more prominent of the two. Consider that Jesus is here gone to the place of the Gadarenes. That name Gadarenes is generally thought to mean reward at the end. <laughs> well, that was true on this occasion. At the end of this trip to Gadara, there was a great reward given mercifully and graciously, but the worst citizen in the entire place, the most pathetic man in the entire place, he's been graciously rewarded with the greatest salvation and deliverance from Satan and his hellish fiends. Consider, first of all, that this gathering was a pathetic man. We read in verse 2 that he had an unclean spirit. More than that, he had demons. More than that, he was demon-possessed. 2,000 of them. Or so they said. 2,000 of them. A legion. Many, many in one man. Now you can imagine... One demon is bad enough, but this man has 2,000 inside of him. He's demon-possessed. They control him. They control not only his actions, but even his words. Did you notice that when Jesus would ask him questions, the demons answered with his mouth? The man's mouth was moving and the demons are speaking through it. He's possessed of them. He's controlled of them. Now let me say this. Thankfully, demon possession is not nearly as prevalent today, if it is prevalent at all, in this day and age. And there's reason for that. Jesus said that he had cast out Satan and his demons. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Satan does not have nearly the control over people that he once had. Satan is now Jesus' devil. Got him on his chain and 
lets him go only as far as he will. I say that because some of us may remember, and I can remember very quite vividly, when I was associated with the Jesus people and we used to do some exorcising and testing out of demons and (laughs) the people doing the casting out probably were worse off than the people we claimed to be healing. (laughs) But anyway, it's, you know, demon possession was very prevalent then, not now. Thanks to what our Lord has done. Demons having been made subject to Him. But this man had an unclean spirit. He's demon-possessed. They controlled him. Second, he possessed this unclean spirit for a long time. A long time. We're not told how long, but his reputation was far and wide. Third, he wore no clothes. He's unashamed of his shame. When Adam and Eve realized they were naked, they at least tried to make some clothes. They were ashamed of their shame, but not this man. He's unashamed of his shame. Fourth, he had his dwelling among the tombs, lived among the dead. Well, that's about where all of us live by nature. We are spiritually dead. This world is a spiritual graveyard. We're kind of like this man. We we dwell among the dead by nature. Number five, he dwelt away from the city, nor did he live in a house. Well, he was very far from the city of God and very far from the house of God. Number six, he was exceedingly fierce. Matthew 8, 28, so that no one could pass that way. He was a peril to everyone who came down the road. People stayed away from where he was because he was a terror and a peril. Number six, he was exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Number seven, no one could bind him. Not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart from him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Now, I want you to understand something about the power of the devil. I can remember again back in my Pentecostal days, and I was a song leader in a charismatic church. It was my job to get things worked up for the preacher, and when I could get the congregation worked up enough, you know, he'd just let me know I could step aside. So we used to do these little physical exercises, all right? You know, I'm leading them. Give the devil a black eye. We'd all pull our fists back and give the devil a black eye. Now stomp on the devil. We'd all stomp on the devil, you know. We'd do a little victory dance around him. (laughs) And all the time, the devil's over in the corner just laughing his fool head off at these people who think they can do what they want to do to him. Folks, don't mess with him. Resist the devil and he will flee. But these people talking about going up and 
giving the devil a black eye and stomping him in the ground. <laughs> yeah, right. The devil's going to get the last laugh in this instance. Number eight, nor could anyone tame him. Moral persuasion from men to him was as useless as their physical force. They tried to rehabilitate him, tried to make him good, tried to give him, teach him good manners. No. He'll break your chains and he'll break your resolve to do everything else you can. Number nine, he was miserable and self-destructive. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out in misery, not joy, and cutting himself with stones. Folks, this was a miserable and pathetic man. Number ten, he was helpless to remedy his plight. He was under Satan's control, and his diabolical master would not release him. His will was subject to Satan's will, and his own will could not go contrary to his diabolical master's will. He had no free will. His will is in bondage, and Satan's got him, and the demons are in control. Second main point, Jesus went to this pathetic man. Verse 1, Then they, Jesus, with his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. <laughs> Do you notice he did not stay there long? He landed. He did what he went to do. Then the people said, you may leave. So he left. <laughs> He just passed through. He must needs go through Samaria because there's a woman waiting on him at a well. He must needs go into Gadara because there's a man in a cemetery waiting for him to show up. Our Lord went to him. The demoniac is not going to come to Jesus. Jesus must go to him. He crossed the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a great storm, just to be there. Jesus went to the pathetic man. Oh, we will not go to him. Oh, that he might come to us. And if he comes to us, something good is going to happen. Main point number three, this pathetic man saw Jesus from afar. Now watch this, verse 6. He saw Jesus from afar. That is in verse 6. But in verse number 1, we read these words. When they came over into the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes, when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now consider we read, he saw Jesus from a long way off. But as soon as Jesus touched the shore, he's there. He's there. How did he see Jesus from afar when he was at the shore as soon as Jesus landed? It appears 
that when he first saw Jesus, it's during that storm on the Sea of Galilee. From afar, from afar, up on the mountain, he sees that storm. It is a horrendous storm on the Sea of Galilee. He's watching that storm. It appears he's watching that storm and all of a sudden it stopped. And you have to wonder what's going through his mind when he sees that there's a storm on the sea and it stopped. What can that mean? And then in the stillness of the water, no wind blowing, he sees a boat coming to shore. Did he wonder if there was someone in that boat who had caused the sea to be still? Did he wonder? He had seen something miraculous happen. Did the man who caused that storm to stop, is he in that boat? If he can bring such peace to a sea of Galilee, he can bring peace into my being. Saw Jesus from afar off. And as soon as Jesus lands, there he is. There he is, waiting on Jesus. We can only imagine what all was involved in that. There evidently is a reason why that we're told Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee in a storm. And then we read of that storm there in the country of, of Gadara. But I will tell you this much. The first time you ever see Jesus, it will be from afar. It will be from afar. We have by nature wandered as far from Jesus as we can in our depravity. We are estranged from the womb, from the womb and going further and further from him every day. But if we ever see Jesus, it will be from afar. And we will make our way to him by faith. Now let me tell you something about making this step by faith. When you come to Jesus, it will be the longest trip you ever made. Because you are as far from him as you can be. When you take the first step to Jesus, you're there. <laughs> the longest trip you'll ever take. And you'll take it in one step. We're told this man saw Jesus from afar. And when Jesus lands on the shore, there he is waiting for him. We will see Jesus from afar. And when he lands... We'll be waiting for him. We complete this journey in one step immediately. Number four, this man came to Jesus out of the tombs. Coming out of the tombs, we read in Matthew 8, 28. That was his place of residence. 
He lived in a cemetery. He had more in common with the dead than he did with the living. That's you and me. If we ever come to Jesus, we'll come out of the tombs. We are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. This world is a cemetery, folks. It's a cemetery. Full of dead people. That's where we live. If we ever come to Jesus, it'll be out of the tombs. Number five, he ran to Jesus. Now, some have surmised he ran to Jesus to inflict physical harm upon him, but that does not appear to be the case. His physical actions had been controlled by the demons. The demons knew who was stepping out of that boat. They knew. They did not want this man anywhere near Jesus. And yet, the man ran to Jesus. It appears here was one action that even the demons could not control. He ran to Jesus. Not to inflict physical harm upon him. The demons wanted this man as far from Jesus as he could be. But there he is. How can this be? They would want him to run away from Jesus. How is it that he could run to Jesus? I'll tell you. Jesus says, No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. The demons are trying to drive him away and the Father is drawing him. If the Father draws you to Jesus, the devil and all his demons cannot keep you away. <laughs> the Father is drawing. And here he comes. He's running to Jesus. When God draws us to Jesus, we run to him. The Shulamite says, draw me, we will run after you. Well, here he is. He's running to Jesus. Jesus' boat is approaching the shore. And look, out of the mountains and out of the tombs, here comes this man. He's running to where the boat is going to hit the shore. Number six, he worshiped Jesus. Verse six. Now, that Greek word translated worship means to make obeisance to, do reference to. It denotes Falling prostrate. Falling prostrate. Jesus steps out of the boat and here is a man who has fallen prostrate before him. He's acknowledging Jesus as his Lord and rendering to him the homage Jesus deserves. And if you ever are drawn to Jesus, you'll stop worshiping the God of this age and Fall down and worship Jesus. I've heard some say, you may have Jesus for your Savior, but not your Lord. Not true. Jesus will not save you until you fall to his Lordship. He is Lord and Savior. This man has come for salvation to Jesus, and what does he do? Prostrate before him. Acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Number seven, he was afterward found to be sitting and clothed and in his right mind. <laughs> Let me tell you, that is, that is one of the sweetest expressions you'll find in this entire chapter. Sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. That is rarely found to be among normal people. This man was a demoniac. And here he is, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Jesus had done what Satan and his demons refused to do, what men had failed in their attempts to do, what cannot be done by man-made religion or ethical morality and what this man could not do for himself. He is sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. All right. All three expressions are worthy of our consideration. Sitting. Sitting. What was his posture before? Running. Running. He was running here. He was running there. Running up and down the mountains. Running after this traveler. Running up and down that road. Running everywhere he went. And here he's sitting. <laughs> oh, what a change has been wrought when Jesus comes. He's sitting. Not only that, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. like a pupil before his teacher, like a congregate in the worship service, like those who reign with Jesus. This man is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Is there a better place to sit? I think not. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed. He's clothed. Before time, he wore no clothes. Exposed his shame to all. But now he's wearing clothes. Where'd they come from? I don't know. <laughs> We're not told, but they're there. Well, if Jesus can steal the storm and cure the demoniac, I'm sure he can find some clothes. This man is clothed. He is sitting and he is clothed. But more important than his physical clothes were his spiritual clothes. He could now say, I will greatly rejoice in Jehovah. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with his righteousness. This man is clothed in Christ, for Jesus is our salvation and he is our righteousness. He's got on the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. Not only is he clothed physically, but he's more importantly, clothed spiritually. All right. He's sitting. He's clothed and in his right mind. He is no longer out of his mind. <coughs> Pardon me. He is no longer in his wrong mind as he was when the demons were in control. He's now in his right mind. What is it being your right mind? It is to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you. 
This man now was Christ-minded, having the dispositions and the thoughts of Jesus Christ. You are in your right mind if you think the way he does. If you have the mind of Christ. He was now sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in Jesus and possessing the mind of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is before him, upon him, and within him. That's the most glorious change you can imagine, folks. What a difference. Number eight. He who had been demon-possessed begged to Jesus that he might be with him. Here's a great token of his gratitude to his Savior. He acknowledges he has been saved and delivered. He says, I want to be with you. I want to stay with you. We have no confidence in the profession of faith of those who claim they've been saved with, by Jesus, but they don't care to be with him. Do not care to attend the worship services where he's worshipped. Do not care to fellowship with his people. Do not care to be with him. This man wanted to be with Jesus. Let me be with you. Jesus is getting ready to go. The man wants to get on the, on the ship and go with Jesus. Jesus said no. Jesus had a greater purpose for this saved man. Verse 19. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Now consider, he wants to go with Jesus and Jesus says, No, you go back home. You tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. This is the duty of every sinner saved by Jesus. Be a witness of God's compassion upon you. What did he do? Now watch very carefully. Watch very carefully. Jesus said, you go home and tell people what the Lord, what God has done for you. You just go back into the capitalist, go to your hometown, go around and you tell people what God has done for you. What did he do? <laughs> Last point. He departed and began to proclaim in the capitalist all that Jesus had done for him. I think this man knew something. I think he knew quite a bit. Jesus said, you go tell them what God has done for you. So he went and told them what Jesus did. There's no contradiction. If you tell what Jesus has done for you, you have told what God has done for you. Now, can you imagine what happened when he did so? He goes home. He probably had a family. He had not seen them for a long time. 
And here he comes walking down the street toward the house from which he had departed so many, such a long time ago. Children playing in the yard and the wife sees her husband coming. She knows what a madman he is. Even if he's wearing clothes, she tells the children, come, 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 get into the house, get into the house. Daddy, the madman is coming. And he says, no, wifey. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. He went home, told his family what Jesus had done. Look, I'm clothed. I'm no longer a madman. I am in my right mind. I wanted to tell you what Jesus has done for me. He walked down the street and the neighbors see him coming and they get their chains out thinking they may have to lash him and see if they can bind him. And he said, no, no, no. Things are different. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Folks, that's all he requires of us. I can do that much. You can do that much. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. It may be that after the Lord has saved you, you go back to work and people say, you know, there's something different about you. Oh, but there is. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. You may meet folk you've not seen for many years and you're just kind of different. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. That's all witnessing is, folks. The Lord does not call you to go knocking on people's houses and say, let me preach a message to you. No. But when the opportunity arises, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And that's what he did. Come and hear and I will declare what he has done for my soul. My soul shall make its boast in Jehovah. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Lawless men, Jesus says, like to tell you what they have done for the Lord. Saved people want to tell you what he has done for them. And oh God, our Father, we've got so much to tell. Bunch of mad people we were. Madly driven in our sins until you came to where we were and drew us to you. And we saw you from afar and came running to you in faith. And you delivered us and you healed us. And now here we are sitting and clothed and in our right mind, desiring to be with you, knowing that one day, when this life is over, we shall be, but until that day, we can tell others what you've done for us. Hear our prayer. Save us. Save our children. To your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.